0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm hoping that the mic works all day today. Um, Sometimes they just have their own minds, it seems. Uh, We are in the third week of our Last Words series where we've been considering some of the last words Jesus spoke, not only the last words he spoke on the cross, but also the last words he spoke before he returned um, to his Father in heaven and um, how many of you have ever come across a book called A Synopsis of the Gospels? Anybody have one? So, so let, me, let me explain. So this is just, a, just one hand one out. A synopsis of the Gospels is, is a book that recognizes that the four Gospels uh, tell the same story from four different perspectives. And, and, and so in one margin, it will, it will take you through the book of Matthew. And what it will do in the next column um, is is tell you where Mark tells the same story and then where Luke tells maybe the same story or something like that story and then in the, f- the fourth column it will tell you where where John speaks about something else um, that's that's as, as best as people understand is the is the same story and what you get then is 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 four different perspectives sometimes on the exact um, same event, the same moment, and sometimes, because um, if, if there were four of us and we, we experienced something, someone might remember something, and some, two people may remember the same thing, and three people may remember um, the same thing, but with a different um, uh, emphasis, and one person may remember something that no one else remembers, and so that's what a synopsis of the gospel does, and they're, they're wonderful books, because it's, a, it's an interesting way to read the gospel, and the, the fascinating thing is that, that you should never really expect four people to remember anything exactly the same way. Um, one, one of the things I remember practicing law was was that if you had four witnesses who had exactly the same story, I mean exactly the same. I remember one time asking somebody a question. So when you came home two years ago on Christmas Day, what was on television? And they all remember what was on television. And do you remember anything interesting about what they said? Oh, they all remembered the, exactly the same line that the person on television said and so what you find then is that when there's exact recollection of an event uh, it's weird um so so what's interesting is that the gospels when when they do that they 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 come at it from a different perspective as the spirit gave each of them inspiration um the reason I'm telling you that is because what we're about to do is we're about to look at what Matthew and John say about the same moment um and and so hopefully um uh, this is going to be represented on on the screen and the two words we're looking at today uh, my god my God, why have you forsaken me? And also, the word I thirst. Um, the word I thirst is from John. The word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is from Matthew. And interestingly also then, uh, a word we're going to come to later as it is finished um, and, and, and yielded up, you're going to see, is, is from a different gospel. I've thrown them all together so we can get a broader perspective on the same thing. Let's, let's read. Now, from about the sixth hour, um, which is about midday, until the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani. A loud voice. I've never heard that with a loud voice. I've never heard someone with a loud voice say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would be embarrassing if I did it now, right? Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It'd be weird, wouldn't it? But the scripture says it was a loud voice. And so unless you, when you read the scripture, you have that loud voice in it, you don't get a sense of what's going on here. You don't get a sense of Jesus' anguish and the pain from which he's expressing this. After this, it moves to John. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Spirit might be fulfilled, said, and of course, we read it with sanitized voices. He said in a polite voice, I thirst. Just like that, in the midst of crucifixion, when he's genuinely thirsty. He screams probably, I thirst. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with this sour wine. And this sour wine is, anybody ever drank sour wine? That's cheap wine. That's less than $2 a bottle. <laughs> uh, it's vinegar, basically. <laughs> right? they, they fill a, a sponge with cheap wine, sour wine, vinegar, put it on his, with some kind of sponge on a, on a stick, and they put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus has received the sour wine, back to Matthew, he cried out with a loud voice, back to John, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up. One of the other gospels says he yielded up his spirit telling us that the gospel writers are being very careful to make sure that we understand that even in this moment of death, Jesus was still in control, gave up his spirit, yielded up his spirit. Now, Jesus had been offered wine before. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 34 says, They gave him sour wine mingled, mingled with gall, which is murder drink. But when he had tasted it, he wouldn't drink. And so when you understand that at the time earlier on in the crucifixion, Jesus is offered wine that has myrrh mixed into it. What they're offering him there is some kind of, some kind of drug, some kind of narcotic that's meant to, meant to anesthetize, meant to dull the pain. And Jesus doesn't want to dull the pain. Jesus wants to experience the full magnitude of the pain of crucifixion, which is interesting because, because maybe one of us, if we'd been in that situation, would have said, yeah give me that. I don't want to feel all of this. I don't want to taste the worst of this. I want, to, I want somehow this horrible experience that I'm going to go through to be less. But Jesus does drink later when they offer him the sour wine. And if you remember when in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays to his Father and says, Father, uh, if, if this cup that you've given me could pass from me, if, if there's another way, let it be. But not as I will, but as you will. And so it seems as if Jesus in Gethsemane perceives that there is a cup given to him by his father that has the bitterest thing in it to drink, the most bitter taste in it to drink. And rather than shying away from it, rather than wanting to have just the top of whatever was in that cup, Jesus seems content to drink that cup down to the absolute last drop. His father gives it to him and he says, Father, if you give me a cup full, let me drink every bit of it. Let me not leave some in it. Let me not pour some of it away. Let me not offer some of it to someone else. Let me drink the entirety of the the cup, the bitterest last drop of the cup, which is symbolic, interestingly, and when Jesus says, I thirst, it's a terribly bitter thing that they offer to him, and it's not dulled or or lessened in any way. But before the cross... Remember when Jesus prays to his father in the book of John, in John chapter 17, he spoke of a, of a glory, he spoke of a love, he spoke of a perfect oneness, he spoke of a unity, some unending eternal life that he'd shared with his father from before the world began. And he prays um, in John 17 verses 21 to 26 for those who will believe in him to participate in that. And so Jesus prior to this has prayed for, for his disciples, but then he turns and says, I pray for those who will believe in me through the words that his disciples speak. And he's praying that the rest of us, those of us who will believe through the words of the disciples, will experience that oneness, that glory, that perfection, that unity that he shared with his Father from before the beginning of time. And I'm reading from verses 21 onwards, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me And the glory which... You gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also who you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so I want you just to think of the contrast. From before the beginning of time, Jesus and the Father are one, a perfect one, a one that we can't even understand, a glory that is of a kind that we can't fathom. And Jesus is saying that he wants us to experience that. But before going to the cross, he says to the Father, return me to that. So it seems as if he has in mind a moment that is yet to come with the glory that he shared with his Father, the oneness that he had with his Father, that unity, that perfection is somehow going to be broken. And if you think about it, oneness was the essence of the Garden of Eden. When God made humankind, God makes man from the dust of the earth and breathes into him the breath of life. And Adam walks with God. Adam is with God when he's naming the animals. And then sin enters the world. And what does sin do? Sin breaks that fellowship. Sin brings a separation. Sin sets a gap between God and Adam. Because when God comes after they've sinned, he can't find them because they're, they're hiding. And the interesting thing is that, that eventually God says to them that because of your sin, you're going to lose the right to live in this idyllic, perfect garden that is paradise. And you're going to be thrown out of the garden. God throws them out of the garden. And what does he set at the, the gates of the garden? He sets angels with flaming swords to, to bar the way back to paradise. And you would think that that symbolizes that God has abandoned humanity, right? But God hasn't abandoned humanity. Even though there is a separation, there is still grace. There is still mercy. There is still a way back to paradise. There is still a plan. God's not surprised about what happens in Eden. From before the foundations of the world, the scripture says that God knew what his plan was. God planned the foundation before the foundations of the world that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would have to die the way that he did. But even though they are separated from God, even though grace and mercy is working still, death is at work. And, and just because God had said to them that when you do this thing that I tell you not to do, you will die, because they don't die instantly, it's probably easy to think that maybe there isn't death, and God didn't mean it, which ultimately was the, the temptation of the serpent, wasn't it, in the garden? But death is at work nevertheless. And I want to ask you, what, how do we know when death is at work? What are the manifestations of death. What does death look like before the actual moment of physical death? Think about it for a moment. When we're hungry, is death at work? Because if you don't eat, what happens? How long can you go without water for? Three days. Less than you can go without food. So when you're thirsty, is death at work. When you're tired, is death at work. When you're sick, is death at work. When you cry, when you experience suffering, or some lack, or loss, or addiction, or depression, or mental illness, is death at work. When you think of the horrible things we do to one another intentionally, and unintentional, and we cause hurt and harm to one another is death at work. And ultimately, we know death is at work when eventually at some point, and it will come to every one of us unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns first, physical death is clearly death at work. But sometimes we, we don't pay attention to all the rest of those things and recognize that, that death is working all the time, and death is, is doing its horrible, horribleness in us. In these little ways, and when we hear of people who commit suicide, and we hear of people who are depressed, and we hear of people who are suffering from mental illness, or we hear of addiction or experience addiction in our own selves, this is death at work. But what I want to suggest to you is, is that there's something far worse than all of those things. What is the worst aspect of death? Exactly that. Separation from God. Worse than all of those things is the actual fact of being forsaken by God, of being abandoned by God, the complete absence of him. Imagine that for a moment. No God whatsoever, away from his presence, no connection to him, a great chasm that cannot be crossed. Think of that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man has his, has his good things in life and the poor man that Lazarus is at his gate has, has a horrible existence and then goes to a place and, and the rich man's trying to cross this great chasm that cannot be crossed. Think of the absence of God's grace if there was absolutely no God's grace, no mercy, no joy, no hope, no life, no light. All that is evil unrestrained. I mean, sometimes in the world, we wonder about how evil does what evil is doing, but this is restrained evil, unrestrained evil, no God. Revelation 14.10 says, drinking the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, drinking, Revelation 16.19, the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And So what is the cup that Jesus drinks? All of that. the bitterest last drop. And so when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You realize he's asking a question, that it's happened factually, that he's experiencing the complete absence of God, no more mercy, no more grace, no more life, no more light, no more joy, no more hope, evil unrestrained in that moment. And he cries out in that moment, why? And what is the answer? Why? Because of us. Because of us. It's not a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus' experience of being forsaken for the, by the Father was because of my sin, was because of your sin, because of our sin. Jesus tasted the worst of death for us. Jesus tasted the worst of death. And this is the good news so we don't have to we never have to so we never will the full power of death the full potency of death the full magnitude of death the full destructive power of death all of that Jesus tastes and experiences in this unguarded moment when he screams out my God my God why have you forsaken me and in that moment we know the answer As we look back with faith and we look back with wisdom and we look back with understanding and what's significant about this I've got I've got five practical points that I want us to walk through Um, um, and I'm presently thirsty a little bit of dry throat The first thing I want to say is, is there's just is five points. The first thing I want us to do is, in, in this, just, just pause and think about this for a moment. Jesus does this for us. And so how should we live because of this? The first thing is, accept that death hurts. Right? Does it? You go to funerals. You see someone buried in the ground. They're a loved one. It hurts. Is it okay to cry? Is it okay to scream? Is it? Absolutely it is. You see, the weird thing is as Christians, we sanitize life too much, I think. I was thinking about songs and talking with Tyler about, um, about secular songs and realizing that they do a really good job of describing the, the worst of the human condition. Who's heard songs about drinking too much and how bad that is? I have, yeah. Who's heard songs about, I just broke up and it It hurts. Yeah. Um, how many times in church have we sung a song like that? That I just broke up with someone and it hurts, but God's got me. Anyone point me to that hymn? <laughs> <sighs> or I lived with someone for 50 years and they were my husband or my wife and they're now dead and, and I look at the bed next to me in the morning and it hurts. Anyone sung that hymn? That's the country songs. It's interesting. See, the point is they are country songs, but why aren't they Christian songs? Why aren't they Christian songs? What is it about us that we can't seem to accept that death hurts? And we can't wear it on our sleeves like it's real. And we can't suffer because when the world calls us hypocrites, which they do, I think that part of what they're saying is that you act like you don't hurt. Yet we see that you believe in someone called Jesus, but the rest of the story is just all fake. Because I know that you suffer the same things that I suffer and hurt the same way I suffer and hurt. And, 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 but you don't even sing about it in church. When they wrote the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved her. How many songs today call us wretches. Right? But weirdly, the world does it better in its movies. The depth. Of the human condition and so the first thing that we're able to do is and i think we must do as christians recognizing that jesus on the cross doesn't sanitize his experience of the worst of death when he tastes how bad death tastes he screams out and i'm not going to do it again (laughs) my god my god why have you forsaken me with a loud voice So that's the first point. The second point is this then, and it comes from that, is to live transparently. Live transparently, what does that mean? It means acknowledge that we hurt to God. Tell God that you're hurt. Tell God that it's difficult. Tell God that it's impossible. Tell God that you can't. Because the weird thing is the scripture says that he gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. And the proud person is the one who acts like, I've got this and I can do this and I don't need you and I don't need help and I don't need strength. Whereas God instead says he gives grace to the humble. And I'm not talking about a kind of grace that is just something we sing about. I'm talking about something real and tangible that actually arrives that we can latch onto and apprehend and live better in the moment because it comes. The scripture, I think it's Hebrews eleven twenty-eight, 28, says that, that since we serve, um, we, since, since uh, our God, uh, I'm going to mess this one up. Uh, uh. Let us serve God acceptably with reverence and fear because he's a consuming fire. Right, And in order to serve God acceptably, we need grace. Let us have grace. This is how it goes. By which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear, because our God is a consuming fire. So what he's saying is that in order to serve him acceptably, in order to do the things that are impossible, we need grace. And so pray for one another. Pray for yourself that we experience grace. God knows what we need. God knows that we are faking it. God knows that we need him. And we need tangible, substantive, effective grace. So that's how we live transparently to him, but we should also live transparently to one another. Why? Because my authenticity helps you. Your authenticity helps me. If I'm distant, if I'm callous, if I'm aloof, that doesn't help you. But if I'm real, appropriately real, this doesn't mean you tell everybody everything all the time. There's things that husbands should only share with wives and wives with husbands. Or men with some other men if that man's going through the same struggle that you're going through. Let me give you an example. If I was addicted to cake, which I'm not. But if I was, well, I do like cake. (laughs) 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 To pause and think, it's not quite an addiction. But if I was, and I'm sitting with Cleve. You're right in front of me, sorry, Cleve. Well, actually, let's go with Hardin. Hardin came all the way here. I'm sitting with Hardin, and Hardin's saying, man, I struggle with cake. And I'm like, hmm. It's interesting this man I just I just can't even have cake in the house I'm like "Mm." terrible person but I have the same struggle how does that help him it doesn't so you insert into that cake thing every other thing we struggle with if you struggle with alcohol or drugs or pornography or violence or anger or something else and you're with another Christian brother or sister and you have a testament that says, I used to, but I don't anymore, and I can show you a way, and you don't tell them that, you're making their life harder, aren't you? And if you fake that you've never experienced the thing that they're telling you, that they are being crushed by, you're making their life harder. That's why the world calls us hypocrites, isn't it? Because this is how we live one another with one another. We're all great about the glory of God and stuff, but we don't want to acknowledge the mess of the human condition and the hurt of death, and the working of death. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, watch out, don't get haughty, don't be proud, but recognize that we're all weak and we stand, as Tyler was telling us, not because of anything good in us, but because of God. No temptation No test, no trial. That word is always, can interchangeably mean trial, test, or temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. Stop and pause about that. That means that nothing that I've faced or experienced or struggled with is just me. It's you as well. And the worst thing that you struggle with, and the worst thing, this is the thing we're going to go here, the worst thing you read that someone's done in the newspaper, we've thought about. But, for the grace of God... We haven't done it. But it's so easy to stack up sins and say there's this hierarchy, and there's these terrible things, and these less terrible things, and these less than less terrible things, and these okay things, and I can talk in public about this level, but not that, not that, not that, and anyone that does this stuff is terrible and an abomination, but really the truth is that we're all there, right? So living transparently before God is saying, God, you know who I am. And living transparently before our brothers and sisters is to say that that you should know who I am too. And you should know what I struggle with if you struggle with the same thing. And, And because we're all experiencing the manifestation of death together. And the scripture continues. But God is faithful. This is the good news. He won't let us be tempted or tested or tried beyond what we're able. This is an impossible scripture. Right? We can read it, but in the midst of it, it doesn't feel like this. And that's transparent, because if I read this scripture and say, so anybody who is struggling to deal with something, who doesn't recognize that this is easy, because this is easy, because when you're in it, I can bear this, great, right? Not like that at all. I need someone to remind me that, come on, the scripture says, God won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, so somehow, somehow, God's thinks that you can bear this and let me help you work out how to bear this and let me not make it harder for you by acting like I've never struggled with the same thing and let me help you find it says the way of escape that you may be able to stand you see the common cry of all humanity is God have mercy on me Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me there was a parable in Luke 18 verses 9 to 14 Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, who was the worst of the day. Because Jesus hung with, who did he hang with? Tax collectors, who else? Prostitutes, who else? Sinners. Came for them, he said. The Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. Mm, 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 mm. I thank you, I'm not an extortioner. I read about people like that. Thank you, I'm not unjust. Thank you, I'm not an adulterer. Thank you, I'm not even as, can't even look at him, him, the tax collector. I fast twice a week and everybody knows about it. I give tithes of all that I possess and I take out full page ads in the New York Times to tell you that I did it. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beats his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, what does Jesus say? The Pharisee is the right man. No, he doesn't. He says, I tell you the truth, this man goes to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So as a human, as a man, as a father, as a worker, as a minister, as well, that's who I am. But whatever you are, live transparently. It's scary, isn't it? Scary sometimes even husbands to wives to tell your wife everything. Or maybe the other way around. Or with friendships, to be honest and say, look, here's this. But the weird thing is the scripture says, confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. And so God has somehow written our healing and our forgiveness into those moments of unguardedness, of openness, of recognizing a sting road in a great secular song, How Fragile We Are. Where's the Christian song that says that? How fragile we are. But this is the good news Again, even though we accept that death hurts, even though we live transparency, there's something better than dwelling in death. And this is a problem that I want to make sure that none of us lapse into, which is just then majoring on the, the bad stuff, right? Because we have a fixation as human beings to talk about ourselves and to think about ourselves and to love on ourselves and to be selfish, right, which is the essence of sin. And so I think, I think it's important that we shouldn't then just dwell in this space where all we do is talk about my stuff and my stuff and my stuff and how bad my stuff is and how bad my experience is. And so there's a, there's a delicate balance there, which is why I said you have to be spirit-led because you can be in a situation talking with someone who's hurting and all you're talking about is yourself and that's not helping them either, is it, right? And, and, when, and when we get in our, our fellowship groups, if all we do is talk about ourselves, that doesn't help either. The balance is, and this is what we were singing in the crushing, in the pressing, you're bringing new wine. There's this interesting experience that goes on um, when when out of the, the difficulties of life something good comes right and if you were to read psalm 22 as as every one of the psalms the psalms are great at this if you read the psalms the psalms the first half of most psalms is just is just wailing right aren't they This wailing but the psalms don't dwell if you read psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me it begins Why are you so far from helping me in the words of my groaning? I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear me in the silent night season. I'm not silent. I'm a worm, no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. Everyone who sees me ridicules me. They shoot from the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights him. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. dogs surround me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast for lots for. But you have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. All you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. For he hasn't despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard him. My praise shall be to you, O God. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. At the ends of the world, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Look at this. Death to life. Death to life. We don't dwell in the death. We recognize that life is here. And so the third point is we embrace life. We embrace the transition from death to life. And we testify to life is the next point. You see, there's a story in the Bible when Jesus heals the blind man. And the blind man doesn't go around saying that I'm healed uh, because of something that I did. How did this happen? He says, he did it. Well, where is he? They can't find Jesus. So they call the blind man's parents. Is this really your son? This is our son. What happened? We don't know. (laughs) All we know is that he was born blind and now he can see. Must be this Jesus. We are called to testify to life. We're called to give credit where credit's due. We're called to say that I used to be this, but I now am this. We're called to say that because I was experiencing this terrible, horrible thing, I've been changed. And I'm telling you that if if we as Christians don't have an I was and I now am, that's problematic. Because if resurrection life is working in us and we can't look at our lives as they once were years, weeks, months, decades ago and see that there's been a transforming of the power of life working within us, then is there life working within us? This is why the world will then start calling us hypocrites, because if we are still struggling with the things that we struggled with years before, and I'm not saying that God instantly delivers everybody from everything, but he, he can do. I heard a story of a man, um, um, uh, an old preacher was talking about the fact that he had two men in his church, and one man um, had been instantly delivered of an addiction, and another guy who struggled with the same addiction, and they were both holy men for the rest of their lives. There's no uniform approach with God well, we have to experience some kind of life in us that we've got a testimony to tell one another. So that when we sit with the world, not only are they criticizing us because you act fake and you act like you don't hurt, but you're just the same as you were 12 years ago. How is that a testimony? How is that a testimony to God? We're not called to be self-righteous. And if, we, if the world's never experienced our depth, then they've no idea of how far we've come when God changes us, Right? So live, authentically, live transparency, transparently. Embrace life. Don't dwell in death. Recognize that life comes from death, and testify to life. Give credit where credit is due. First Corinthians four verses five to nine, which is the essence of the song that we were singing earlier. We don't preach ourselves. We don't tell anybody that it is me that did this. Anna said I might not talk about this, but I have to. I have a wife who, who we have two plants in our house. And one plant was my plant, and, it's, and they were bought at the same time. And it was smaller than the one that was Anna's plant that is huge now. And somebody says that the reason the plant grows is nothing to do with God, or water, or grace, or the fact that it's in front of a bigger window but it's because somebody talks to it. <laughs> and so I'm condemned by that because I'm like, I don't talk to my plan enough. <laughs> but we do this in life in much worse circumstances than that, don't we? Yeah, we take credit for things that have nothing to do with us. And so testifying to life is to not take credit for any good thing, any good thing in us, any good thing in you, any good thing in me. Is God. I struggle to prepare every time I come to prepare. I don't like it. I don't like the preparation. I don't like the fact that it's me talking and you all listening and that, and that you're expecting something that's better than drivel. It's a level of pressure that I don't like um, and would rather not preach, really. But God, the sense that he's called and the sense that he enables yeah. And some of you may have fear of public speaking. I don't like standing in front of people and talking at all. Really don't. I remember when I was trying to become a writer, um, I remember the experience that I had was difficult, and I was struggling at the time, and, and, and there wasn't enough money, and it was hard, and people weren't returning phone calls. But when I read that uh, Pacini, years ago, was, was in this room in Milan, playing piano every morning, eating a bowl of onion soup because that's all he could afford. And he wrote a letter to someone saying, my friend, my brother, whatever it was, whatever you do, don't do this. (laughs) Don't do this. I read of Wagner later who, when he shifts to Paris to become an opera writer, is so poor that he has to pawn his wife's wedding, he sells his wife's wedding ring and they have to make a choice between medicine and food. And so next week, I'm speaking to some students at um, University of North Carolina about the path of the writer. And if I don't tell them that that's what it's like sometimes, I make their journey harder, right? Because if I tell them it's all fame and all glory and all winning competitions and all Billboard number one records and all Grammys and all that stuff, I'm not telling them the truth of it. And so give credit where credit is due. And if you persist through something that is a difficult situation and you come out of the other side, give glory to God. We don't have testimony times because they sometimes go on and on and on. But, but we've just shut that stuff down. But as a result of which, in your situations, your social situations, make sure that people know the good that God has done in your life. Verse 6, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure. Think about that. You have a treasure in earthen vessels, deliberately. Not in vessels of metal, but in earthen vessels, soft, fragile vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God, And not of us. And so God's put his power in this fragile humanity. Not so that we can fake that we don't suffer. But so that his power and his glory can be seen. So it says we are hard pressed on every side. Who's experienced that? Yet not crushed. We are perplexed. Who's experienced being perplexed? But not in despair. We are persecuted. Who's ever done anything for the Lord that someone's ridiculed you or humiliated you for? But not forsaken, struck down. Who's ever fallen? Who's ever fallen? To the point that you did something so terrible that you didn't think that there was any way further down and you weren't sure that there was a way up. Anybody? You see? always carrying around in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. And so somehow there's this this responsibility that we have to live like earthen vessels, genuinely, transparently, one to another. I can feel you all squirming. Because it's difficult, right? It's hard. And we'd rather fake and make my brother and sister's life Harder, but that's not what Jesus did. He didn't ask them to put a shield around the cross. I'm about to have a moment here. So can you shield this from the world so that this scream I'm about to let out, and he, yeah, doesn't do that. That happens a lot, right? He doesn't do that. He just lets it out, but doesn't dwell there. He moves on and lives in the life of that is the power and resurrection power of God. And the final point is this, therefore, live in the fullness of life. What does that mean? That means to recognize that because Jesus tasted the worst of death, we will never have to. Never have to. Yes, we will hunger, and yes, we will thirst, and yes, we may get sick. Yes, we may have shooting pains up the back of our leg that were so painful this morning that we couldn't stand up but it's now gone, so glory to God, because I prayed, and and God, I can't even stand to preach. But sitting there, I said, God, this hurts, and it's been there all week. And I was wondering whether he just did that so that I would have to suffer in the preparation of this so I could understand what it means to testify to life out of death at work. And so I'm going to say that that was horrible, but it's gone now. God did this. Live boldly, confidently passionately you see if you stop and think just 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 think you never ever have to experience being forsaken by God ever there will never come a moment if you trust in Jesus if you've if you if you're if you've if if your life is his that you'll ever have to experience being forsaken by him being abandoned by him the worst of death the rest of death yes but that's not the worst of death See, as Christians, sometimes we live, when we tell the world that actual physical death is the worst of it, we're lying also. Let's not live like it is. Because Jesus says, at one point, he says to someone that we shouldn't fear Um, The people that can destroy the body. And he's speaking to people who through persecution may have actually found themselves in a place where persecution would have meant that they had to yield their lives to someone who would kill them, burn them at a stake or crucify them for believing in Jesus and confessing him. He says, don't fear them because there's something much worse than that. And we live in a way that we're actually so afraid of the actual physical act of death that we don't testify to the fact that there's something far worse than that. And we don't speak about that. Because the world doesn't like it and we don't like it that much. But if you recognize that God has done something for you, that the glory that Jesus shared with the Father from before the beginning of time, that oneness, that unity, that's ours. His life, his resurrection power, that's ours. To reverse the working of death, to heal when death creeps in, to transform the mind that is depressed with hope. To turn the person who's at the moment of suicide away from that. If we can get there, if we can pray for those people, if we can bring the life and resurrection power of God to them somehow, some way, to free from addictions, so that we can have testimonies that I used to be this, but I'm not anymore. Whatever that thing is. That's why we live boldly, that's why we live confidently, that's why we should live fearlessly, that's why we should live unashamedly, that's why we should live big, not small. Because sometimes I used to say to people who would say that I don't believe in God and I'm an atheist, they say, yeah, I don't believe you. You know why I don't believe you is because you don't act like it. If you believe that there's this thing called annihilation, that you're never gonna suffer or be punished for your sins, then you ain't living big enough. You're really living too small. Because if there was no suffering, no punishment for sins, and death was the end, and there's no God who we stand before in judgment, even Paul says, then we're the most miserable people in the world trying to do the right things. Instead, we should be the ones stealing cars and robbing banks and stealing planes and living in the big places and doing all the things that we should do if we think that there's no consequences. But as Christians... Again, how do we model the fact that we believe in a God who has taken away the worst of death, the sting of death, if we're still living small? If we don't risk, if we aren't adventurous, if we don't try things, if we don't dare to do things that might, we might fail in? For him, confident of this, that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was abandoned. So we will never have to be. One of the most famous passages of Scripture in Romans 8 says this If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but if he delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Anybody? God justifies. Who then condemns? Christ died and furthermore is risen, who is at the right hand of the Father, the resurrection power of God. That when Christ dies for us and suffers this abandonment and this forsakenness, that the grave can't hold him. And the power that God raises him up with and lifts him up and seats him at his right hand is the same power that is available to us Even on this day, even on this day. Christ Jesus, who sits there to make intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? You really can say no. All distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, trying things that we fail at, trying things too big for us to attempt that God tells us to do anyway. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Back to Jesus' question on the cross. My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? So that this may be real. Never forsaken, never abandoned, never separated from the love of God. The sting of death nullified. The worst that death has has been faced by Jesus. So I don't have to, so you don't have to. Therefore, live in that. Live in it. That doesn't call us to smallness. It calls us to reckless living for Him. To faith that causes us to attempt big things and dangerous things and risky things for Him because the worst that death has has been defeated in victory. Which is why He gave us a meal, a family meal. That every time we take communion, every time we break the bread, we remember that his body was broken for us. Every time we drink the juice, the wine, we remember that his blood was shed for us. And so can we do that together today as we take these elements? Lord, we thank you. your life your death your resurrection Jesus we thank you that you died our death for us that you tasted the worst of death so that we will never have to God and we pray that your resurrection power your resurrection life shall be at work in us and through us God transforming us as we live transparently before you O God and before our brothers and sisters but oh God resurrection power that through us, Lord, may help to transform this world, may bring light to dark places, hope to places where there is hopelessness. Life in the midst of death, we pray. We thank you, God, for your body broken and your blood shed on the cross for us. Amen.